Ultimately, at the end of the day, I think if you focus on, I have a solution, it can scale, it solves a problem for a base of customers, you've got something of value that people will pay you for it. And if they're not going to pay you for something, that just means you're not hitting a mark on, on, on the value. My name is Isabel, and this is your Product Thinking Toolbox. Darby Sieben is the Chief Product Officer for Unbounce, leading engineering, product management, product marketing, UX design, and business development focused on using ML and AI throughout its product features to help marketers create and optimize their marketing efforts. Prior to Unbounce, Darby was the co-founder and head RBC Ampli Inc., a Royal Bank of Canada venture business leading the business from ideation to public launch and scale. He's also an active investor in several startups. Thank you for joining the podcast, Darby. I'm really excited to chat. Thanks, Isabel. Glad to be here. I am very excited about this episode because I've obviously had the privilege of working with you and I know how insightful you are in terms of the work that you've done and how you've led teams. I know you do a lot because <laughs> you're currently not just the CPO of Unbounce, but you're also an investor and advisor to Walnut Insurance, Get in the Loop, and Maya.io bot platform. Is that correct? Yep. Okay. And you're That's also correct. the member of the Partnership Leaders Association. Okay. That's correct. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. How do you do it all? <laughs> <laughs> it's a great, it's a great question. So first and foremost, obviously, you know, the focus on unbalance is primary on top of everything else on the investment side. So, you know, I do have some direct investments, as you had mentioned, Walnut and Maya get in the loop. And, you know, really the advisory role there is, is just working with the founders when they have questions or when I can lean in and, and you know, help them with maybe a particular problem. And I also consider myself, at least on my direct investment side, more of a strategic investor. So I try to understand their businesses so I can at least push, you know, contacts over to them and, you know, use my network to help them, help them grow. I'm an LP at a number of different funds as well. Those I, I pretty well just, you know, that's the typical investment model. You're putting money in and hoping to get a return. But really it's about, you know, kind of prioritization just really thinking about, okay, you know, what, what are those common, common, common things that are consistent across all of the businesses? And so, you know, I think in the past, Isabel, you and I have talked a little bit about, you know, I tend to look at, you know, the companies that I work with and the problem sets and try to find the common patterns, because then I find that actually allows me to accelerate thinking and it allows me to accelerate how do I make connections, you know, and I think that's, that's, I don't want to call it a trick, but that's just one thing that I, I look at as as I see. So, you know, the problem set that Walmart faces to unbounds to what we saw, you know, RBC to say Yellow Pages group in my past. A lot of the problem sets tend to be universal. And then obviously there's nuances because all the businesses are very different. Right. And you mentioned prioritizing time based on the themes, but how do you prioritize your time to also do strategic thinking work amongst these different product types? Because even though they have similar themes, they are still different to some extent. Yep. 
Yeah, they are. Absolutely. I think, I think part of it is just two things. And this is just about my personality. I'm naturally a curious individual. So I love to just see how all of these things interconnect. And, you know, maybe there's a little bit of ADD in the concept of, hey, how do I just try to learn different verticals and what have you, at least to the point to get institutionally, you know, aware of where, you know, what it means. So curious is being one. And then second is, in, in some essence, it's actually my hobby as well, right? I, I just actually enjoy everything about business and the intersection of business and technology and what value it can create. It's kind of been my MO almost since the beginning. So, you know, a lot of people ask me, do you have a lot of hobbies outside of work? And I struggle with that question because work and hobbies to me are very are interconnected, right? And I think that just, you know, because I have a passion for it, it's easy to do as opposed to going, okay, now I need to focus on this because it's my job. It's more, I just want to do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I definitely know how passionate you are about just Unbounce in general as well and, and also the work that you've previously done. But speaking of just hobbies and focus, You've also transitioned from the focus in industry. So you made a move from fintech to martech, which is unbounds right now. So firstly, why martech? Yep. Why do you think it's a good time to be in marketing tech right now? Yeah, I think it's always been a great time to be in marketing tech, especially with the advent of digital that's coming on. And I would actually say I'm kind of back to my more roots within MarTech. I think FinTech was kind of the oddball in my career. You know, the first company that I had was in the 90s was really focused on building solutions for SMBs. My Yellow Pages career was really, you know, solutions for SMBs. And, you know, through, through that transition, you know, bringing the Google reseller program to Canada, the Facebook program, reseller program to Canada, at least through YP. So most of my career has actually been circled around that intersection of marketing and either B2C. B2B is a little bit new. YP was a B2B2C company, but I was more focused on the C side. The shift into Royal Bank, which was an amazing experience, phenomenal company, the shift into Royal Bank into the venture side was probably the the odd shift. So in some ways, I'm coming back to my roots of helping marketers, you know, with, with the unbouncement. When you were in fintech, though, did you have any kind of yearning towards going back to that SMB? Because it clearly is a passion for you. How do you still align your interest in that passion of empowering the SMBs into what you mentioned, fintech in a, a new space that was deviating a little bit from the theme that you were chasing in the past? Yeah, and here was kind of the exciting part about, you know, the Ampli experience and the RBC Ventures experience. So Ampli was a cashback app for consumers on the front end. Link your card, we use your transactional data, we can provide you rewards based on your purchase behavior. But really the big power of what we were attempting to do and what they are doing, I shouldn't say attempting, we did, and Royal Bank continues to do, is look at, you know, Ampli as a marketing platform for marketers. Because with the, the, the intersection of what we saw on the front end, you know, we could shift amply into the story of, you know, you're not paying for an impression, you're not paying for a click, you're actually paying for a sale. So in a lot of ways, what we had built within Ampli was actually a marketing platform on the business end, you know, and then on the front end, it was a cashback app. And then we used it as a way to introduce, you know, people into becoming RBC customers through a credit card, because we could do things like, you know, if you make that purchase with an RBC card, you get more value than if you make that purchase with a competitor card, even though we'll still give you value on the competitor side, 
because on the merchant side, you know, the merchants kind of don't care which card you use. They just want the sale. But obviously on the front end, you know, we wanted to try to direct more people to using RBC credit cards. So even though I went into the fintech space, it was still a very much, you know, connected to the marketing world. And, you know, if you think of, of, of RBC, you know, they, they have amazing assets. And for them, what's really strategically valuable is if the businesses are succeeding and the consumers are succeeding, then actually banks win. So banks want all parties to succeed. And so it's how do you create the intersection of value between the two? Knowing that you're just an entrepreneurial human being, <laughs> like you really love to solve problems quickly and and strategically plan to kind of scale companies quickly as well. How do you find working in big infrastructures like banks? Because there is obviously a a connotation or a stereotype that banks move really slowly, but you're also in competitive spaces like fintech, for example, it is moving really fast. And especially when you say fintech technically is, was kind of categorized into the MarTech space as well. How did you yep. overcome said bureaucracy? Do you feel like there was any bureaucracy when you were at RBC? Like, I think there's bureaucracy in every business. And I think that, that you know, the, the misnomer that people have around banks operating slow really comes down to, it depends on the use case. When you think of core banks, and I think as consumers and businesses, you know, the notion of security and privacy and protection of your money, that's non-negotiable. And, you know, that really is something that these organizations have to step through very, very delicately to make sure that they're not, you know, if you're outside of the fintech space, you can put something out and if it breaks, it, it's okay. When you're dealing with people's money, that is a non-negotiable, right? And so the slowness isn't a byproduct of them not wanting. It's a byproduct of you're dealing with a really, really big, issue that nobody is going to, you know, you can't lose on that, that side of it. So what RBC done, did that I think was really brilliant was they took RBC Ventures and they put it over to the side and RBC Ventures still adhered to all the security policies and privacy and all of that stuff because that's critically important, you know, on that end of it. And it allowed us to innovate quicker, but still had the shell around making sure that, you know, these non-negotiables are still non-negotiables. Did it slow us down a little bit? Maybe, but I wouldn't say it slowed us down a lot. What it actually did do, sometimes being an innovator, an innovation company inside of a big company, is it may be a little bit slower to get the product to market, but when you do, you've already got built-in distribution. And so you can you can scale your product faster. Where if you're a brand new fintech starting, the challenge you've got is you've got to build product, you've got to build trust, then you got to build scale, and then you've got to acquire, and those things, you know, take a lot of um, time and cost, and it's not hard to build a product, but getting distribution of the product and what have you. So, it's just different problem sets. But I would argue that you know the notion that banks operate slow is not necessarily fair to them. You know, in terms of what they're trying to do for us, we don't want our money jeopardized. <laughs> good point. Good point. Especially if you look at the past climate with the banks 
in general, you do want to make sure that everyone's money is taken care of and secure. You do, you do, 100%. You know, and then of course you have, you know, as anybody would tell you, even the fintechs, you know, that are starting up in Canada and what have you, you do have a great regulatory body. So there are things within your product roadmap and things you're just simply going to have to do to even have the opportunity to be in market because the regulators will tell you. And again, you know, the regulators are there to protect the consumers and the businesses and their deposits of money flow and make sure that all of that continues to go. And I guess it isn't so different now, as you say that with FinTech and MarTech, because they're both very competitive. They're, they're competitive spaces, mm-hmm. be it in big banks where it's almost sometimes a monopoly and you have to just compete to make sure that customers are still staying loyal to your bank or you are a new up and coming fintech credit card or a debit card, for example, you have to also stand out in the market. And now you've also moved into a very competitive MarTech space, which is utilizing AI to really drive marketing efforts. And AI, as we can tell, is in a very competitive space right now. You know, there's so many companies vying for the most innovative and effective products for sure. And based on your experience fighting to be at the top, what are the key principles that you've had to maintain that top tier position? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, on the MarTech side, I think one of the potential advantages to FinTech is because of the regulatory body you have to actually work within a particular market. MarTech, you know, you are competing sometimes at a more global level, like Unbounce is an international company. We've got clients all around the world. And so that means we have competitors all around the world as well. But when I think about, you know, big innovation shifts like AI, and this is such an incredible time, really no different than the web shift or the mobile shift or, you know, the cloud computing shift. I think at the beginning, there's a lot of, at least people within the industry, there's a lot of excitement around the technology and what the technology can do and what have you. And, you know, we're seeing a massive proliferation of, um, you know, use cases that are coming out, which is phenomenal. I think what, you know, typically ends up happening over time is, you know, a lot of maybe some of the stuff that's being built today really aren't really companies. They're just going to become features within a bigger product set. The way I think about, you know, technical shifts is do you necessarily have to be number one? Maybe, maybe not. In most cases, number one kind of doesn't always win. I mean, Google was, I think, the 19th search engine, you know, you know, so there's, there's some slight nuances there. But I think the key question is going to be, okay, do you have, you know, alignment from, you know, investors all the way down to their operating teams? What does distribution look like? Because that's obviously a key thing, you know, cost of of distribution. And that can go down. I think AI is going to be a deflationary, deflationary technology. So it's actually going to lower costs. But I think now the real question becomes, you know, how do you take the technology and put it behind and really think about the use cases on the front end, you know, because, you know, like cloud computing or mobile platforms or the web, you know, with an AI, we can pretty well expect everybody's going to have the same foundational layer and the companies that are going to win are the ones that really bridge the, how do I use my data combined with this data and create the user experiences that are simple to use and activate and what have you. And so, I think the one company that's really, and AI has been around for a long time, so this is obviously not a new thing. I think ChatGPT just brought it out. But I think when Microsoft launches Copilot inside of 
you know, their office suite. I think people are going to see the real, a really cool business application of this. And then there you can start to see, then you can start to imagine, okay, where are all these other things, use cases? And that's exciting to me because we are building a new generation of companies that are going to come up and solve these problems in very different ways. Some of them will be small, that will become big. A lot of them will get acquired by the bigger companies. And it's just the whole evolution of, you know, technology from what I've seen. So that's kind of the way I think about it. I don't know if that answers your question as well. Yeah. So just to summarize so that I can capture my understanding, your probably some of the mental models that you lean on when you think about playing in the market is easy user experience from what I'm hearing yep. or basically leveling out the user experience. So it's a lot easier for customers to approach these types of new technologies and then on the other hand, too, is just making sure that there's alignment in investors to execution or executionary yeah. teams. Yeah, I think because, you know, when I think of, you know, the four pillars, and, I, and this is a gross simplification, when I think of the four pillars, you know, there is you need capital, you need, you know, human people, you need resources, people being a big part of it. You know, you need time to, to figure some of these these things out. And then you just have to prioritize within that. And then, you know, obviously underneath that, you've got distribution and what have you. But yeah, it's, you know, if you ultimately at the end of the day, I think if you focus on, I have a solution, it can scale, it solves a problem for a base of customers, you've got something of high value, people will pay you for it. And if they're not going to pay you for something, that just means you're not hitting the mark on, on, on the value. That's a gross simplification, but. Well, kind of leave it there. <laughs> so th that's fair. Uh, so maybe then as an actionable for whoever's listening to this podcast, what are some strategies would you recommend to differentiate your product strategy in a highly competitive market, especially when we look at rise of AI competitors within different spaces as well, be it MarTech, FinTech, or even just stuff, just agriculture even? Yeah. So I think there's kind of two approaches. And again, this is a little bit of a gross simplification, but I'll, I'll, I'll kind of do it just in terms of the mental model. I think there's a couple of approaches. One is, you know, in the MarTech world, you know, are you building a, what I would call a horizontal platform that has many, many use cases? And a great example of that is AdWords. AdWords works whether you're small or whether you're large. And then what you're really focused on is what I call universal solutions, at least at the product level. If you're going to do that, then you've got to flip, I think, the go-to-market to get really narrow and crisp, right? And a lot of that's going to come down to the use cases, how I engage with the product, et cetera. Maybe there's some product features you build that are sitting on top of, you know, the core platform that you're building off of. I think that's mental model one approach where, okay, I want to build something universal at a horizontal level and I want to verticalize within go-to-market. I think another approach and neither one's right or wrong. I think they're just different decisions. Another approach is to say, okay, let's take a point solution and go vertically deep. And then if you're going to go vertically deep around a point solution, then you're going to have to know who you're there for and who you're not there for. And I think, you know, if you're looking at, and in both ways, you still have to do that. That's part of the prioritization around, okay, who am I actually really trying to service? Who do I want to attract? What's my cost of acquisition, et cetera. But I think, you know, going narrow allows you to, solve the problem super deep, which you're going to have a competitive advantage over the horizontal players, but you're also going to limit the size of the market. So there's there's no really right or wrong. I think it just depends on, you know, your objective, how you see your product stack, you know, the marketing, you know, all of that components, what the investors are looking for, et cetera. 
do you have any threshold with your way of thinking in terms of where too deep into the wrong space let's pivot when do you think it's a good call to maybe abort mission and rethink for example use cases audiences etc because sometimes i would see startups for example go so deep into a problem that they believe and it's almost confirmation bias and yeah. they can't really get out of it so when do you think it's the time to say okay well let's reset and and look elsewhere yeah that is a great question that's obviously one where you know some of the coaching and advice and i still learn this every single day myself so you know even though i've been in business 25 years i'm still learning a lot of this stuff as we go to really comes down to you know fall in love with the outcome not necessarily the how you're going to get there depending on the problems that you're going to do but i think you know when you start to look at map out a view you've got to give things enough time to percolate and you've got to see those early signals and those early signals on, okay, if we start to see, you know, user traction, then does it start to make sense as we continue to go down this path? Then that's going to get overlaid with, well, geez, what's actually really costing us in order to make this happen? The best organizations that I've found, kind of the best groups is, you know, if you're going to be a product leader in something, surround yourself with good individuals who will challenge your thinking and will challenge the timeline will challenge the metrics will challenge the outcome because there are pieces i mean there's great ideas that have unfortunately died on the vine because they didn't have money to get where they needed to go and then there are ideas that were really bad but had lots of money continue to exist i think it's part science and part art as well because sometimes there's just you know bigger environments i think a lot of companies probably coming into 2023 had a view of the world and just with the acceleration of what's happened with you know ai and chat gpt okay, whoa, we've got to just take a step back here because there's, is this still the right path? You know, and those are bigger shifts. Once those settle, then it is, okay, how do we, how do we kind of step through this? And usually when it comes to taking a step back in itself, how do you collaborate with the different partners across the different product orgs? Because I know that there's obviously a lot of skin in the game if you've invested into a specific strategy, et cetera. What are your ways of, ensuring that there's healthy debate and healthy conversations when it comes to pivoting the strategy or without, I guess, discouraging the team. Right. Yeah, I think it, it does get anchored in, you know, at the highest level, are we still trying to solve the problem we set out to solve? And so that's kind of the big tent problem. And, you know, Every company has the, you know, the big tent of what we're trying to solve. And Unbounce is big tent for 13 years. And I think for the next 13 years is how do we pair a marketer with our tools to create better results? That then gives us a, a, a permission to go really wide. And then we've got to prioritize and figure out you know, from there. So I think when everybody's aligned on that kind of top part, then it starts to become the question of, okay, you know, we are deciding this is a specific strategy we're moving on. You know, let's let's understand how long we're going to need to start to see early indication. Let's understand how we're going to start to see all these things. And do we see those things that are coming in? And naturally, if you, I think if you build an organization really, really well, it, it could be, you know, both bottom up that goes, I think we need to actually adjust or top down because maybe we're just not seeing things fast enough. And I think a good organization is one where regardless of your level, 
you have the permission and confidence to stand up and go, are, are we still moving in the right direction or do we need to start to tweak or do we need to start to change and what have you? And there's a, a slight nuance in there because some people want to change things because they just want to do things their way. Others will want to change things because they're looking at the bigger picture and going, hmm, there might actually be different ways we can approach this that can actually help accelerate our thing. And so I think if you can build as a leader within a product organization, the most important thing is building trust within your team so that you have both a bottom up view of the world and a top down view of the world. And, you know, sometimes there's going to be conflicts with those decisions are going to have to be made. And then, you know, people are just going to have to follow with those decisions and just go and then have the next opportunity to kind of talk about, you know, areas we want to change. That's fair. I also, though, have to call out that you have a lot of product expertise, but you also have a really in-depth experience with partnerships as a whole. And I also kind of want to pull on that string a little bit because you've had about 20 plus years in partnerships business, correct? Mm -hmm. And I know that based on my time at Unbalanced, you have been a big believer in leveraging partnerships to scale a strategy. So Maybe the biggest question for me is why do you think that partnerships is the best way to scale a SaaS strategy? Yeah, I think I think partnerships for any business, whether it's SaaS, I'll go back to the, the Royal Bank time there, they were massive into partnerships. I think great partnerships can unlock massive value for all stakeholders, company A, company B, and then ultimately the customers of both those companies done right. I think the challenge sometimes with partnerships, and especially when you say business development, and I've you know seen this throughout my career, you can think of business development as sales, which there's definitely a component of it that is. And you can think of business development on, hey, here's your call sheet, you know, go forth and sell. And those are what I call rinse and repeat kind of, you know, product initiatives and what have you. And then there's the other side of the spectrum, which is, you know, we're going to use partnerships to actually transform a business, which is kind of what we did at YP. You know, at YP, prior to our digital transformation, you know, our business was we printed a book, we had a sales team that put ads in the book, and we distributed it, and it was great. You know, when the internet came along, it fragmented very quickly. And then we realized, were we in the business of distributing a book, or were we actually in the business of aggregating a lead? If you shift your mental model to getting a lead, then you can engage with partnerships like a Google because a click, you know, to a call and a book are both a lead. You can have partnerships with Facebook. You can do things, you know, we powered Yahoo Search in Canada, you know, what have you. And so you can look at, you know, those kind of partnerships as enablers. And partnerships just take many areas. You know, there could be tuck-ins for technology. There could be sales. There could be distribution. So done right, partnerships can accelerate any business, regardless, I think, of what vertical you're in. The last question, maybe, is that in 2018, because I know there's so much goodness that we want to dig into, but you wrote in 2018 that there are four key back-end pieces in building a successful partnership strategy. So there yeah. is planning the divorce before marriage, Philo, which is finance, IT, legal, and operations, spending time on the front lines, keeping communications short, and mastering the art of pre-sales. So is there a sequence of these four pieces and how do you leverage them when talking to a potential partner? Yeah, is there a sequence? No, I, I, I think it's more like a pie chart that you know all of them kind of need to work together. I don't think you can 
I don't think you can have a great partner execution if you don't actually have all those key stakeholders in place. So it's definitely not one or the other. I think it's, you know, all of them together. I think of it as a pie chart. All of them have to come together. If I had to say there's there's one that that you know maybe more important in certain use cases than others, maybe when you're engaging with partners where you can partner in one aspect and your competitors on the other aspect, right? And at YP, you know, we were pretty well as we were transforming that business. We were both competitive and partners. You know, Google was a competitor and a partner. Yahoo was a competitor and a partner. Microsoft was a competitor and partner. You know, they were partners with us on the B two B side. They were competitors with us on the B two C side. You know, because people wanted Google wanted everybody to come to Google instead of YP.ca. But on the sales side, you know, we were happy to sell into Google. So those are just interesting, interesting models. And that's where I think, you know, thinking through the, how do we scale the partnership to then how do we actually eventually exit the partnership and do it in a way that is not going to put your customers in the crosshairs is just something I think businesses really, at least in strategic partner business development, you just really need to think through, you know, where's the end state of this? And then how do you structure agreements so that when you do need to part ways, and maybe you don't, or you do need to part ways, or the you know the, the things change, you've got a you've got a, a straw model that you can look at, and then a, a legal view so that you don't get into mess. Because the last thing anybody wants is you know business development deals to end up in court, and then you know lawyers just make a ton of money. I think if you do it well at the front, you'll know when a partnership is working, and then you'll also know when it's time to start to. That, that's fair. It's what you said: plan the divorce before marriage, as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, which is which is fair well Darby thank you so much for your time this has been really insightful I'm sure the audience would learn so much and get out of so much of this conversation is there a place that they can find you if they wanted to ask you questions or just keep up with all the amazing thought leadership that you put out into the world yeah my primary my primary is definitely LinkedIn so and and there's not a lot of Darby Stevens in the world so it's pretty easy if you do a Google search you'll find you'll find me all over the place LinkedIn is is a pretty high engaged area for me you know and then I house a lot of my thinkings just under darby.ca which you know people can go but I would say if you want to any of your listeners want to reach out to me or connect LinkedIn is the best spot um not very active on the other social platforms maybe I should but LinkedIn is where I spend most of my time Thanks, Darby. Again, this was this was amazing. And I always learn something new with you. So I appreciate the time. Well, and I appreciate the invite, Isabel, and keep up the great work on this series. You're having amazing speakers. And I think, you know, any of the listeners that are, you know, tuning into uh, the stuff that you're publishing, there's a lot to learn. So, you know, thank you for bringing together, you know, all these different perspectives. I think this is a great thing to do for just, you know, helping people as they think through their careers and what have you. So really, Really love what you're doing. Thanks, Darby. I appreciate it.